Welcome to CX and Chill, the real, raw customer experience podcast from Exo Studios and ExtendOps. Today, host Sean McCreary explores the incredible career journey of Elena Bernardo, SVP of Operations at HelloFresh. Join them as they explore diverse topics from enhancing customer experience in the financial industry, leveraging the power of AI to better understand customers, and redefining personalization in today's dynamic landscape. CX and Chill starts now. And action. Well, I'm excited. I'm finally here hosting CX and Chill. Camera one or camera two? Camera one. Uh, Yeah, I'm excited. I'm finally hosting CX and Chill. um, And I'm here with my good friend, Elena Bernardo. That's right. Happy to be here. So I was, I was nervous yeah, about the last that's name That's okay. You, you aced it. <laughs> so Elena, thank you so much for coming here. Uh, I know we're in Vegas, even though I don't, I don't know if you can tell by the backdrop. We're here at the Cosmo, my favorite hotel here. Um, but but Elena, I'd love to hear, maybe just to get things started, you have an insanely like impressive background. Like Walk us through sort of your story. Yeah. I mean... I wish I could say I did it all intentionally and it was all planned out and it really wasn't. A lot of it was just being at the right place at the right time and I think looking out for opportunities. I studied at Brown University in Providence and wanted to move to New York City. I think that's where everybody at the time wanted to move and um, the Wall Street scene was popping and my first job was on Wall Street. I worked at, in mortgage-backed security trading. Um, it was a crazy time, but it, you know what I remember is just working a lot. Right. I think a lot of people have a very glamorized image of what that is. But, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, plain hard work um, and a lot of best practices that carried me through my career. I didn't want to stay in banking. So I later went to consulting and wound up um, eventually at Amazon. Wow. Right. Um, Which, again, you know, is a series of semi-intentional, semi-accidental steps, um, but really wanted to get in with a technology company because I saw that that was the kind of the way um, the world was bending and a lot of interesting changes and innovations were coming from the tech space. And, um, you know, at the time I thought Amazon was leading the charge. I was living in London at the time and moved to Luxembourg with them um, and then moved to Seattle where I still live. Yeah. And that was a huge uh, kind of shift back, almost like a reverse culture shock because at that time I had been living in Europe for more than 10 years. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one thing led to another, but, you know, during COVID, I joined HelloFresh, which was absolutely exploding at the time. Um, it was meeting the moment during COVID. People didn't want to go to grocery stores. They didn't even want to leave the house. And as a meal kit subscription company that came straight to people's doors, um, they were just needing to grow in logistics and fulfillment in every single function. Yep. And we, we acquired a lot of companies. And I think this is when the role of customer experience really, you know, came into light. So so your story, though, your background, because you, you're very sort of modest, I think, in, in sharing that. But if if my memory serves me correct, so, you know, you finish your, your, you know, your graduate, you know, degree at Brown, and then you go to Goldman Sachs and do the whole MBS thing there, which was crazy at that time. Yeah. From there, you you know spent some time at this kind of no name company called McKinsey, right? I think I've heard of them before. Yeah, and you a were there bit. for about like I a was decade, there for right? for almost a decade, nine wow. years. Yeah, and then from there, then it was like, hey, like you know, I'm kind of getting interested in the tech front, like, and I see a lot happening there, and that's sort of what prompted the move to Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, most people come to McKinsey for like the two year associate experience, and I actually loved it um, because I, I thrive on change and I thrive on variety. Yeah. And I think for someone who is 
who likes that pace and is a bit of an adrenaline junkie, yeah. you know, because on the inside I am, um, it, there's no better place, yeah. right? Because it's like if you want to be told like, hey, next Monday you start in this city with this client, off you go and you like that kind of surprise element. Um, I, I just loved it. And I ended up staying and moving to different roles and moving to different cities. And before I knew it, I had been there nine years. That's crazy. And um, and I was very happy there, actually. Is it easy to survive at McKinsey for that long? It, you know, I think if you're persistent, yeah. you can do it. And if you are uh, willing to... Um, deal with a lot, yeah. right? But, you know, stay positive through it, deal with change well, right? I think if people have a very rigid sense of what they want their career experience to be, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to work out, right? Because no one can tell you or promise you that this is what the next two years are going to look like. Yeah. And it just all plays out. Um, so I think it, it worked for me. So what, what what was sort of like that final moment at McKinsey? You're like, what? You know, I've been here, done that. Like, I'm ready to go to Amazon. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It was, um, you know, when when Amazon approached me, which was through re- a recruiter, actually, um, they were offering a role that was a people management role. And consultants are rarely people managers. We manage small case teams, you know, three to four people here and there. And, you know, maybe you're leading several case teams by the time you're senior in the company. But what Amazon was offering was a role that had hundreds of people in my span of control and had, um, you know, scope across multiple countries. And they said, because I had a lot of functional skill sets, the people management side could be learned. I thought that that was brilliant and very, you know, risk, um, risk loving of them, so to say, because to hire someone who has really no track record in people management and give them a people management role on the expectation that you can be effective and they will help and support you to be effective was um, at the time I thought that was almost like a life changing proposal. And um, I was really happy to take them up on that. And I thought if they take a risk on me, I'll take a risk on them. That's pretty cool. So like. So before you got like while you're at McKinsey, so like so so that's sort of what prompted the move there, yeah, like to Amazon. But like at McKinsey, like how much did you touch the CX world? Jesus, uh, oh, a fair amount. Yeah. We were doing a lot of process improvement, and because of my background in um, in securities, right, in Goldman Sachs and that whole world, I was doing a lot with banking and customer experience in banking. Oh, wow, okay. Right, so the customer center world is huge, and some banking products are very complex. And um, lots of moments of truth in sure. CX, as you know, <laughs> sure. right, and some very, you know, positive and negative moments. I mean, I remember there were moments where we were working on collections and recoveries processes, basically um, working on payment plans with customers who were under financial stress. And those are very challenging conversations, very, very challenging moments, some very, very high stakes (laughs) moments. We're talking about um, people's homes, you know, mortgages and all all of those things. So I learned CX at its trickiest, right? And, you know, at moments where you can come through for a person and really help them get get through a hardship. Sure. Right. So I think I learned CX, um, from, from a very difficult industry angle 
and a very different industry angle than the one we I work in now. Yeah, financial services are not an easy place to get started in the yeah. CX world, is my understanding. And you have all the fun infosec stuff that comes with that as well, and it's pretty regulated. Absolutely, very regulated, um, very specific about what you can and can't do. And it's it's even gotten more complex. I think now the world is even more complicated than it was like ten years ago. And oh my this. gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're getting to experience a lot of that fun stuff right now with every you know taking on different accounts and going into, you know, work from home. It's, uh, there's a lot more, uh, a lot more things that need to be done than there were in the past, but, but understandably so. So, so right. So you join Amazon and you're moving around a little bit, right? You actually yeah. weren't back stateside. You were still in Europe, right? I was, I was in Europe from 2014 to 2017 with Amazon. Nice. Yeah. Was that, what was, did you like Amazon Europe style or like, it, like stateside? You know, I think, um, it it's more corporate yeah. in Seattle. I think in Europe it was still very much a startup and a much lesser known company. And it sounds weird to say that because now Amazon is such a household name. But I think during that time, among European countries, it was very much a startup yeah. and much lesser known. And in e-commerce in general, it was still kind of going through the adoption curve. People were still learning how to shop online and to trust it because it's a, you know, the the consumer practices are to shop in local stores. And, you know, I think it was going through that development curve where people were learning about the possibilities of e-commerce. And it was very exciting. We did a lot of um a lot of change programs during that time. And then when I moved to the U.S. in 2017, it was still Amazon, but it was almost like a totally different company moving to HQ. I remember when I joined, it was two days of back-to-back -back interviews. You wow. hardly got a break. But at the end, these are the people who will advocate for you. And they will help you be successful. And they, through that process, become vested in your success. And even though right now, um, you know, people might say, well, that's overkill or why do you need it to be that long? Yeah. Um, it actually paid a lot of dividends in the end. And so like, and, you know, in just our conversations, I know you sort of specialize in logistics. Now, what, when did you start getting into that world? Was that sort of McKinsey days, or was that sort of what you started touching on Amazon? You know, I, I think it, logistics and customer service have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, uh, people always flip out when I, I say that, but, you know, process matters and data matters. And I think these are both fields where there's a data rich environment, a lot of, um, you know, working with large data sets and making daily decisions, yeah. right. At, at very, um, kind of minute level, but it all ratchets up to a delivery experience or a customer experience. So in logistics, we talk about delivery experience, which is a whole, you know, did it come on time? What is, you know, what condition did the box arrive in? Is it, you know, delightful to open it? You know, what is in-home experience? Experience with it. How do you message people? How do you chat people up when uh, something is going to be late? How do you handle changes on the fly? So this whole world. So was was Amazon already like thinking about that? Because I know you were you were joining them right when things were heating up. Was like that whole concept of delivery experience something that was already being prioritized? I think it was already being prioritized. And I worked in two different transportation or logistics related teams in Amazon, and they. Both were looking at ways to take more control of the delivery experience and to make it that's something that is a unique core asset to Amazon. 
So taking much more control of activities that used to be outsourced to third parties, right? And they wanted to control everything and they had an expertise in tech so they could build the tech to control it. And I think this was really their, their source of competitive advantage. So, you know, when I... Um, came to HelloFresh, I already had that background in logistics and also the background from McKinsey and just data-driven process excellence, yeah. right? And being tech forward, not being afraid or running away from new technologies, but actually dabbling with them proactively and seeing what they can do for you. So I think um, a lot of the intrinsics were already there when I came to HelloFresh. So pretty applicable transition then from Amazon sort of focusing on that delivery experience and, you know, being very data-driven across sort of the entire process and then going to HelloFresh. A hundred percent. And you're right there. And yeah. my understanding is you went to HelloFresh like right before COVID started. Or was, was it, or was it, it was COVID? It was early COVID. Early COVID. This was like, we're talking pre-vaccine. So there was no vaccine available. It was the days where um, social distancing was sort of like manifesting, right? And everything was about six feet apart. That's really hard to do in a distribution center environment. Yeah, you know? I can so, imagine. Yeah, so our productivity went down. Um, people who were sick had to quarantine for a week. I mean, you'll remember the rules were incredibly uh, stringent, and people were very risk averse. So, you know, we could shut down entire departments. People stopped going to work. Everything had to be done remotely. So the company was just changing the way it worked in the context of like doubling demand. Yeah, that, that's what I'm curious yeah. about is that you have, I mean, uh, consumer behavior fundamentally changed during COVID, or at least I think it was already happening, but I keep hitting this thing. Yeah, it, it already, I mean, it was already changing, but I mean, I think COVID certainly accelerated. I mean, the, the example I always give is yeah, I, I went up to Seattle actually, and I yeah. was visiting my, my grandfather, and he's like 90 years old, and he's using Instacart and he's ordering, you know, he's ordering mm. and he's never, you know, he'd always gone to Costco or something like that. And he's using Instacart now. So, I mean, just like even seeing my own family and just like tangible examples of how, you know, something like that more or less changed how he buy things. He bought things and he had that experience and he had a good delivery experience. It sounds like, and sure enough, yeah, that's how he got groceries you yeah. know, from that point forward. Yeah. We saw that. Um, we saw so many new customers, um, that we acquired just, organically, we didn't have to invest a lot in marketing because people were flocking to a product that, you know, allowed them to shop from home. This yeah. was the whole um, e-commerce boom and we felt it at HelloFresh, but certainly the industry felt it overall as well. And we had to completely um, change to scale for, um, for, for just for the level of interest yeah. because processes that maybe work well for 10,000 people don't work for a hundred thousand. And it, even if it worked for a hundred thousand, it may not work for a million. And you have to be really watching out for what are the inflection points where manual processes break, where certain errors that used to be just, you know, small things now become highly visible and happen often enough that you can't like, you know, sweep them under the rug anymore. Yeah. You got to address them. So then, so you're in this environment when you join, it's already sort of like early COVID days, you know, mm -hmm. where the six feet was, you know, very much in place. So you have demand more or less probably, probably more than doubling at that point, yeah. with very limited marketing spend. But then you also have sort of the back end operational complexities where, hey, everyone's got a quarantine, like we can't have people in this warehouse yeah. or something like that. So how do you sort of balance those two? Or how did you balance those two at the time? I mean, some people, to be honest, like, it was brute force in some cases and people worked 
incredibly hard. I mean, I think the burnout that came after COVID was a real thing sure. because people were just, you know, flat out working and sometimes without weekends, uh, making that choice because it was the right thing to do for customers. And we we chose not to turn away customers. Um, I think we we fortunately were able to move customer care to a remote environment fairly quickly. We had to buy a lot of equipment and take care of security requirements sure. and make sure everyone had a professional setup, but we made that investment and, um, you know, made that transition. But, you know, for other functions, it was a multi-month journey to find additional capacity, find additional logistics partners, change some of our own um, processes, right? And get new facilities. We've launched new f fulfillment centers. I mean, we've completely changed the way we work. So like with your customers, right? I, I guess I'm, I'm like, like hooked on like, all right, you have, you know, more demand than you've ever had. You have all these crazy, I mean, on top of just, I think the basic operational complexities you would have as a company and just scaling mm -hmm. and, you know, delivering on double demand. You also have all these different challenges in terms of what COVID did and, you know, yeah. on people being out. I mean, when you're managing the customer experience there, like, I mean, did you find that customers were pretty, I, I assume there had to be hiccups there. If things are growing like crazy and you're, you know, operational challenges, yeah. like that's inevitably what happens, you know, despite, you know, people's best efforts. Mm -hmm. So how do you guys manage that? Well, we obsess about customer experience and we track every error. So we track, you know, quality, were the ingredients spoiled, pick and pack, did we send you the wrong stuff, logistics, account management, all sorts of errors. And you were right, the error rates went up. Sure. And in some cases, they doubled or tripled. Now, fortunately, we had a very understanding customer base that also, you know, was living COVID real time, understood some of the... Um, operational challenges and we're willing to stay, you know, through that. And we tried very hard to manage expectations. So for example, if there is going to be um, an error, we try to be proactive in our notification because customers are much more likely to understand if you just tell them, yep. right. Rather than discover after the fact. Yep. Right. So, so kind of small, um, small details like that, we paid a lot of attention to and, um, you know, now as we kind of emerge from COVID into a post-COVID world, you know, these are our customers to retain. We have to continue to evolve with them and their needs are changing. Yep. So what worked for customers two years ago isn't necessarily, you know, what's hot today. So we've had to continue to adapt. I don't think the pace of change has slowed since COVID ended. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and no doubt, I think the customer evolves over time, right? Yeah. And I think what's interesting about the HelloFresh strategy is that, I mean, it's not just HelloFresh. There's several other brands that have been acquired over time that more or less were strategically acquired for either, you know, just to acquire new customer bases or to fulfill different customer yeah. needs. And uh, I mean, I think we've talked about before, there's some other brands within HelloFresh that have seen actually continued growth even as COVID sort of has ended. Absolutely. So, you know, the aim of HelloFresh has been to be a food solutions group mm -hmm. and the different brands are complementary to each other. Where we see the greatest growth right now is in kind of convenience foods. So if you remember during COVID, 
everyone was baking bread and making these elaborate meals. They had mm -hmm. a lot of time on hand and were kind of bored at home, yep. I think was part of the theme. And now that's ended. So people are going to restaurants. They're traveling. They're in Las Vegas, right? And so when they're at home, they want something that's nutritious, but less time intensive. Yep. So our Factor brand, which is our kind of heat and eat, um, ready, you know, ready to eat meal, no, no preparation required, microwavable has seen tremendous growth through this, um, because it meets this moment. And we've also looked at our other brands and tried to introduce more recipes, more variety, more options that are easy to prepare and more, um, kind of meal occasions, right? Because breakfast and lunch are also important meals. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, different things we offer now as bundles to appeal to those occasions. And so, and I know you're very much, you know, sort of specialized in the whole idea of data-driven process excellence, right? And, yep. you know, with that evolution of customers over time, you know, my, my assumption, right, is that like, as you know, things change, you know, with just the overall world, right? In terms of, hey, now I can actually go to a grocery store and I don't have to be six feet away from somebody, yeah. right? I can actually, I, maybe I don't need that HelloFresh kit, but maybe I want that factor kit that's a little more yeah. convenient, doesn't require me to, to cook. Like, how do you, like, I guess, how do you inform your current customer base of these new offerings that you guys were rolling out? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Every, marketing is probably the most... Um, obvious way we do it, uh, certain promotions. We've recently started to focus more on retaining customers and having teams that focus on the experience of customers who have been with us for a while, and then other teams that focus on the new customer experience. Because what it takes to surprise and delight mm -hmm. the segments is different. Right. Definitely. And now we have um, kind of targeted teams that look at the kinds of offers, the kinds of promotions, um, you know, the kinds of strategies from a marketing angle that better work for these different demographics. Um, and we track in customer care, we track both of these very, very importantly. So, for example, um, we've worked together on VIP Mm -hmm. treatments for our most loyal customers. And these are the ones that are most critical for us to retain. Some of them have been with us for years, you know? Mm -hmm. So we need to find ways to continue to surprise and delight them. And when we make a mistake, we need to own that in a really big way and make it up to them and show that we care about them as a customer. Meanwhile, on the other side of the spectrum, there's still a lot of new customers. Yeah. And 60% of contacts to customer care are from new customers. Maybe because the more loyal ones have already figured out how it works. They Makes know sense. how to pause their their subscription. They know how to make meal changes, but others need a little more support with their account. Makes sense. And yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. So more or less, I guess, strategically, what you guys have done on the CX front is you sort of segmented your team, right? You know, going, hey, like the experience, you know, maybe a new customer has with us, you know, needs to sort of be handled a little bit differently than someone that's been working with us for two years or something like that. And I also know you guys have different ways of sort of also just managing all the different brands that sort of fall under the HelloFresh umbrella right now. Absolutely. Everything that we're doing right now is around personalization. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's going to be a topic that continues to be like a hot topic for years to come, because if you can anticipate why someone would call, so you have that order history that says, oh, wow, this customer's, you know, had a storm in their area, their yeah. delivery is probably late. You can come to that interaction already anticipating this is what this call is going to be yeah. about. This is how we, you know, how we're going to remediate the case or what kind of compensation we're going to offer. 
much more efficient personalized interaction than like fishing for why they're why they're contacting us. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I, I do actually, I want to, I, I want to come back to personalization really quick. Cause I'm sure. very curious to get your perspective there in terms of tech, but I guess, I mean, just like while we're sort of on like these different teams, you have managing it all. I mean, I think a lot of, I think to me, like what's really interesting, like I'm relatively new to the CX space. I've been in it for five years, maybe, I guess, technically I guess I've always been CX, you know, I've been yeah. hand, you know, working with customers, but, but I think what's like, you know, interesting about like, the the CX world is I think a lot of people have a tendency to look at it as just a cost center. Like, oh, like, you know, we have like, it's support, right? We have to just, you know, we got to spend money. We got to make sure we're, you know, answering our, you know, our customers a certain time. And, and that's definitely shifted, I think, with, you know, e-commerce becoming sort of the way in which people buy things, everything that happened with COVID, everyone sort of, I think, sees that, you know, CX is an awesome opportunity to sell and yeah. to, uh, you know, make your customers happy. And it, I mean, what's cool is it sort of seeing like what you guys are doing strategically, you very much look at call center as not just a cost center. Absolutely. I think that's a fundamental kind of mindset that companies can choose to adopt because customers will stay with you because they love your customer service, mm -hmm. especially since they've probably been around the block. They've probably used other e-commerce companies, be it in food or other segments, and they know um, that good customer service is hard to find, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who will understand your need, meet you um, in, in a fair way. It can be a real differentiator. And I think people absolutely will choose to stay with a brand because they've had a positive experience with customer service. And customers who um, have, I, I read some research, I probably will get it wrong, but customers who have had an issue addressed positively will be even more loyal than customers who had no issue at all. Yeah. And that's that to me is really interesting. No, no, I, I've, I've right. read a lot about that. And I think that's sort of something that you know, I think our company is really big on too. It's just, I think, you know, it, it's unfortunate when something bad happens, right? The truth is, you know, something bad's going to happen. Like right. that's just the world we live. It just, yeah. it's probability, right? I mean, it's going to happen, but I think you have a huge opportunity to, like with that issue to sort of do something right. Right. And if you can come in there and be that savior, you can score a lot of points and you can really win that customer back. Right. Yes. Or even, you know, Absolutely. gain upside that you didn't even know existed because you came in there and did a good job where most people win it. Absolutely. And that can take the many, many forms. It can take the form of, you know, empathy and kindness from a customer service agent. It can take um, the form of the willingness to remake a box that was damaged in transit. There's a lot of error recovery solutions. And I think we're, we're constantly open for new ideas, constantly looking for ways to, you know, take that next level and differentiate ourselves through service. Yeah, it's super cool with your background mm -hmm. too, with, you know, the McKinsey and Amazon. I mean, I, I can totally see in terms of, you know, talking about innovating and sort of incubating new ideas. Like I, I definitely know that's something you guys do a lot of. So yeah. I want to come back to personalization because okay. you talked about that. And I know we've had a lot of conversations on the technology front. So I guess just high level, like, you know, when you think about sort of this like CX world in which personalizations came, like how does tech come into that? Because obviously you want smart tech, right? Yeah. But like personal, like personalizing things, like when I think personalization, I think obviously something very, you know, specific to me, but also I think of the empathy, right? I think of having a nice conversation yeah. with someone. Think about calling, like, for example, I call an airline and like, you know, I get someone that answers right away and that helps me out. And I'm like, wow, like 
that's a huge relief. But like, yeah. what do you, I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of like, you know, what's happening with technology now with chat GPT and everything and how that impacts personalization, good or bad? Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's an incredible potential that has not fully been harnessed yet. And there's a lot of ideation and uh, very little that's actually changed the way we work yet. But we're, you know, we're working on incubating it and bringing it to light. One very obvious um, way of personalization has nothing to do with generative AI, actually, but it's just um, identifying the customer when the call comes through mm -hmm. and linking it to their history, right? Having a full history of what this customer's preferences have been, how long they've been a customer, are they a VIP, and tailoring your treatment to the kinds, uh, to, to their specific situation. The next level then is, I think, um, tailoring it to the specific issue that you expect them to have. And that does take a little bit of predictive analytics sure. to say, okay, hey, like to use my old example, we know we had a storm in your area. Your box is going to be delayed, but it's still going to be safe. It's still going to be delivered with all the ingredients, you know, and this is the new date um, in managing that expectation. And then, um, you know, I think the next level then becomes this whole um agent assist universe yeah. that is, um, I think, been uncovered through ChatGPT and other generative AI tools. And, um, you know, that's really more around the transformation of how our agents work and yeah. what they work on. So high volume, low complexity requests mm. are ripe for automation. Sure. A lot of what we get um, is really simple. Like, how do I find my tracking link? How do I pause my subscription? I'm traveling. Things of this nature are not even complaints, yeah. right? They're just questions. And self-service FAQs, chatbots, those are excellent, excellent avenues for what I call high volume, low complexity interactions. Then for the lower volume, but higher complexity cases, this is where a human judgment can add a lot of value. Totally. And I think agent assist tools as well can add a lot of value because if you look at the manual workload of a chat agent, for example, they may have up to three chats and they're working concurrently. Yep. It's a lot. It's a lot to keep track of. They're typing entire, you know, sentences, paragraphs from scratch, right? Many times using the same wording, same phrasing over and over again. If you can have an agent assist tool powered by generative AI that is basically just predicting the next word, what is the most likely next word that will come, yep. you can expedite a ton of that work. And I think Chad GPT and the likes are incredibly fluent, yep. incredibly uh, kind of well-spoken, and sometimes they get the details wrong, yep. right? This is the, you know, they're they're good in style, but not so good in substance for now. Yep. And I think this is where, again, an agent can step in, can provide, you know, can fill in the blanks to moments or gaps in um, in the Chad GPT flow. And because it is a learning system, yep. those, those uh, gaps or flaws will be corrected over time. And if you train it on the right data set and put guardrails around it, it will get better and better over time. And it's not to say that human judgment will be eradicated or replaced, not at all. But I think it'll allow people to focus their attention on the things where judgment really matters. Yep. And everything else will just be fast flow. Fully agree. I mean, I, I love actually how you approach that question too. Because mm -hmm. I think when anyone thinks chat GPT, everyone's like, oh my God, like 
60% of people in this industry are going to lose their jobs in five mm -hmm. years. And it's like, wow, that sounds ominous. Like yeah. that sounds horrible. But I think like what I like about how you guys have always sort of looked at that, this and even just how like you answered my question there, mm -hmm. like the first things, you, three things you said were really sort of up the alley of sort of agent assist. I think that's yeah. what you sort of called it where it's, you know, more or less using this tech to allow our teams to work smarter so they can create a more personalized experience for the customer, right? That, right. I mean, that's sort of first and foremost, like the focus. Now, obviously, I think sort of, I think how you categorize, you know, high volume, low complexity tasks. I mean, from my experience, sort of being on the services front, I mean, the truth is like, that's where we have the most attrition because it's a lot of the work that's, you know, it's not, it doesn't require that much critical thinking, right? right. You don't really need to connect to the customer. So what I find is that I think people want that more complex work. They want that career progression. They want to take the next step. And usually the next step is a little more challenging. So to me, what I, what I think is cool is like, I think you guys are like, Hey, like there's easy automation opportunities here, whether it's, you know, answering, you know, you know, like having FAQ and making that actually usable FAQ, but then also making sure though you're really investing in allowing the people that touch your customers to work really smart. So, yeah. I mean, and it seems like that's really where you guys are focused right now. Yes, absolutely. And all of these technologies are going to be evolutions, not revolutions. I honestly believe that because there was a big splash around Chad GPT, but now it's kind of like, okay, well, what's, how do we actually use this? And yeah. a lot of experimentation going on. And what we're seeing is that there's no magic button and it just works and replaces human work, right? Yeah. It takes a lot of tuning, a lot of experimentation, a lot of learning. Yeah. And even then it needs like some serious guardrails. I've so. seen, I mean, I, I had a conversation yeah. with a person far more experienced and intelligent than myself last week. But, you know, in the conversation I had with him, the big thing he said is that, you know, look, all these different tech solutions are coming out, you know, with all the, you know, all the developments on the chat GPT, et cetera. Sure. Front. He's like, but the thing is like, the truth is like, customers are going to continue to drive what happens on the technology front. All these companies, all these vendors will come up with their different SaaS solutions, but the implementation will not be successful unless there's really truly sort of a customer, like, you know, uh, the company, the brand really driving that process and working with partners to sort of, I think, like you said, put some guardrails around it and experiment a little bit and see yeah. what works, what doesn't. And, you know, I think sort of balancing, you know, how do you continue to make your customers happy today, but also how do we work smarter so that we can start, you know, actually implementing some of this stuff so our customers feel us getting better. Absolutely. And there, there is so much in addition that I think can be tamped into. So some of the tools are around customer sentiment analysis, and this is both at the personal level and at the aggregate level. So for example, uh, being able to guide an agent on, hey, you know, this customer sounds like they're in a hurry. Yeah. So maybe you can accelerate and just like cut out some of the niceties and get to the point, right? Because yeah. he's indicated in the call that he wants to go fast. Or, you know, you've just talked for a long time as an agent, why don't you slow down, ask your customer if um, they understood everything you said, yep. right? And there's a lot of new technologies that, again, as a form of agent assist, are doing sentiment analysis in the moment and providing cues to them for how they can have, um, you know, greater connection with the customer, yep. I think is, is really that. And then those tools bubble up to find aggregate trends, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe you've had a policy change and the, there's a lot of negativity around it. Yep. You know, how do we 
find that data and mine it and use that to drive um, our product strategy. Yeah. In fact. I mean, I think what's cool about just again, in conversations we've had about it is I think your guys sort of obsession with how do you make this as real time as possible? Yeah. How do you get these insights as quickly as you can so that you can sort of, you know, pivot what your team's doing strategically, whether it's like, Hey, we just rule out this new rolled out this new policy. Like, you know, how are people, how is it being received? Like, is it working? Is it not? Is it sort of meeting, exceeding our forecast? Like, so, I mean, it's, it's stuff like that, I assume. Absolutely. And it's even, um, you, you know, can be used in real life kind of daily situations. So for example, it's a perishable product. It's a food product. If there's a food recall or any kind of safety issue, we want to know about it right away. So if we see an uptick in complaints about a certain product, Right. We want to know about that, you know, as soon as we see that trend emerge so we can take it back to our food safety team and see like, hey, is something going on here? Because we're now getting a lot of complaints about a certain ingredient, for example. Makes a lot of sense. So so more or less. So, I mean, it sounds like I mean, for a company like HelloFresh, CX is incredibly important on so many different fronts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we're um, just starting to find mechanisms to link in better with the rest of our organization and going from kind of more siloed approaches that were like, oh, the marketing team is working on the marketing strategy and customer care is working on, you know, they're whatever they're working on and everyone is working in sort of their functional silos Mm -hmm. into a more collaborative structure where people problem solve together and they bring insights together and work on solutions together as well because i'm curious like i mean with a lot i mean i know for example with your guys's operation there's tons of different data points being collected every single day Mm -hmm. i mean and i'm always i mean this i see this a lot of you know different people we work with there's all this data being generated yeah like how is that data being used across the entire organization i i think it's probably the next opportunity it's one of the biggest opportunities because we're almost like lost in the data sometimes and we there's either a tendency to look at historical metrics so like aht we've always measured that Mm -hmm. that has to make sense right or like we you know i don't know speed of answer like very traditional call center metrics yeah and that's kind of everyone's sweet spot yeah right like gotta get this right but we're trying to get to the next generation of um you know are we surfacing trends that are useful to our product team, are we giving feedback to our marketing teams about how campaigns are being received? Yeah. Right. Uh, do do people feel like we're being authentic to our promises, right, and sticking to our marketing promises? Things like that, and that's the inflection that we're trying to drive. And when we when we look at the KPI decks, they're still too focused, in my mind, on traditional call center metrics, yep. and not enough on that those voice of customer insights. And how do you like from like across like departmental sort of collaboration standpoint, right? Mm. You, know, you mentioned silos and sort of data living in different places. And I guess, you know, putting on your McKinsey hat here, right? Because I mean, I see yeah. this across different organizations. And, you know, I, I will say the thing that's really surprised me the most about the CX world, because like, you know, I'm like, I'm going to call center. People are like, wow, like cool, cool career move, Sean. Like, but <laughs> I mean, as you dig in, you're like, wow, like, the amount of data yeah. you have access to is incredible in terms of understanding your customer. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think what I found is that a lot of that data isn't really being shared or a lot of the work that the CX teams are doing isn't necessarily, I think, being actioned, you know, across the organization. 
So I guess, yeah. you know, with that McKinsey, I mean, how do you actually get that collaboration to start happening? One way has been through voice of customer sessions. And we um, have started organizing this and are getting really good traction. So for example, we will pull interactions that just have logistics wrap codes. And we invite the logistics team and we just have them listen, right? And it can be painful at times, of, right? Like, <laughs> like here, sure. yeah, pretty uncomfortable <laughs> of like, hey, the tracking link doesn't work, or you know, I'm I'm elderly and I can't. I've asked you ten times to leave the product at my front door, but you keep leaving it by the garage, and it's incredibly inconvenient, right? And um, you know, making a systematic effort to eradicate those anecdotes, yep. right? And to take them very seriously because I think a lot can be brushed aside and to say that's it's just one person, it's just one person's yep. experience. And, um, you know, data can be a source of paralysis. I will caution with that yep. because, you know, you can always say, well, show me more data. I'm not convinced, right? But we really challenge the teams to take the listening session, take the learnings and come out with just a few actionable next steps that they're going to change in terms of the product, terms of the way we communicate, um, the way our logistics partners work with us, all of those things. Yeah. No, I think it's uh, it's fairly easy to manipulate data to sort of support a uh, narrative that you're yeah. trying to push. But I think it's the context, right, that kind of matters. And, you know, and yeah. it sounds like how you guys kind of do it is the whole voice of customer. It's like, hey, like, here are the data points. Here's the data. Like, this is why we're here. Yeah. Now you get to context. Now let's listen to some of the customers. And Absolutely. And we've started to look proactively at social media um, forums, but also ratings platforms. So Better Business Bureau, Yelp, um, you know, all the different groups for that are exist on Instagram and Facebook. There's a lot of communities. And they're not reaching out to us. So this isn't necessarily a customer care moment because they're not asking for help yeah. and they, there's no question, but you can look at the sentiment, you know, yeah. how many of these are positively inclined versus negatively inclined. What are they talking about? And really take that to heart, right? Yeah. Because they're very unfiltered conversations and some of them are, you know, brutal. Yeah. You'll get the brutal like yeah. truth, right? You're going to, you're going to get it whether you want it or not, but it's out there. Right. And, it, and, and anyone can access these things. So, and it's just a matter of sort of tapping into that and sort of seeing what the brutal truth is and, yeah. and, but also using that as a better way to gauge sort of, I guess, sentiment, if you will. And, you know, building that into like what the company does strategically. Absolutely. And never, you know, never, um, talking it down. So, so one of the things that I really, don't like to see, and I think, um, you know, is, is very serious is like talking down negative reviews. Or so saying things like, well, who really looks at the Better Business Bureau? Like, sure. who really cares about that? Like that no nobody uses that. Well, it's like, okay, are you saying that because you don't like what's been written there? Yeah. Or, you know, are, are we really inviting um, critique. I think the best companies invite critique. They yeah. want to know what they're doing wrong so they can be better rather than kind of take a blinkered approach. Yeah. So you guys are more or less looking for more areas or 
different sources of information to sort of tell you that brutal truth? Well, absolutely. Because like I said, we acquired a lot of customers during COVID and they're ours to lose. Yep. So, you know, many customers, customer acquisition is harder because we've already exposed much of the U.S. to our product. They've at least heard of it. Some people have tried it and maybe paused it or stepped away from it. And we want to kind of re-engage with them, teach them about how our offering has changed because it's changed a ton. And um, we've improved a ton as a company, so we want to find, you know, a way to be exciting again to customers that maybe have lapsed. That makes sense. Yeah. So I have to ask on the outsourcing front. Yes. BPOs. Um, I mean, was HelloFresh sort of the first time you were exposed to sort of that world, or I assume you may have touched that world in your McKinsey Amazon days, or? Oh yeah, I touched that world before. Maybe not necessarily from a customer care lens, but. Outsourcing and offshoring have been around forever, and certainly in manufacturing contexts. You know, many of the goods we buy, certainly the clothes we wear, many things are. You know, they may have an American label on them, but they're they're manufactured abroad. And a lot of the work that I did in the past helped companies move their supply chain abroad for the for the economies that they could get, but also from skill advantages because certain parts of the world are considered, you know, capability hotspots. And you want to be there, right, to tap into that resource pool. So I I did a lot of work on um, on that and helping companies paint that journey and actually do it in bite-sized pieces and earn trust along the way. And um, it's exactly that journey we did. I always knew though, like in the kind of in my heart of hearts that this would be feasible. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. No, I mean, I, I guess, I, I guess just as we sort of wrap here, um, I mean, we have this whole thing, right? Stay wild. Yeah. And you know, for, for us, stay wild is, I mean, it can mean a lot of things. Um, I think for me, the big part is like, be who you are, be yeah. comfortable being yeah. you, because usually when you're comfortable, that's when you do your best work, you're the best version of yourself. But, yeah. you know, I guess, you know, for HelloFresh and for you personally, like, how do you guys sort of do the whole stay wild thing? Yeah. I mean, we're a company, I think, that is based in authenticity and food is a convener. You know, the whole product is about getting families and friends together over food. And that, I think, is a moment where everyone can, you know, stay wild or be their true self and just... Family dinners can get a little wild. (laughs) Family dinners can get wild. Friends, you know, dinners with friends for sure can get wild. Um, So we want to think of our product as something that fosters that, right? And, And we have the same philosophy that people are at their best when they're themselves. Totally. Right. So we want to create a space where people can do that. I love it. Very cool. Well, thank you so yeah, much, Lynn. I appreciate you. You, you coming here today. And yeah. I think it'll be a fun evening on the strip. So yeah. awesome. Looking forward to it. Huge shout out to Brittany Kelly and Carly Carolla at FW Rentals in lovely Las Vegas, Nevada for their support and custom logo work. FW Rental provides rental and custom build out solutions for all of your event and production needs. We love you, Brittany and Carly. Learn more at fwrental.com. That's fwrental.com. And that's our show. CX and Chill is a production of Exo Studios, the creative marketing arm of ExtendOps. With today's host, Sean McCreary. Executive producer, Sean McCreary. Producers, David Spear, Clarissa Coronado, and Memo Davalos. Editors and videographers, Santiago Aguirre, Alfonso Ramirez. Graphic support from Jordan Madrid, and social media guru, Claudia Corona. <laughs>